Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports, your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. Got Ross Martin, Greg Bournes, and Mike Ingersoll here. So it's going to be fun. Might be a little hectic. Ingersoll can get a little wild at times. So we'll see how this goes. Greg, let me start with you. And let's look back just for one second. The replay issue in the Carolina game and, quite frankly, in the NC State game and then in some other college football games was rough this past weekend. There were a couple plays in the California game, and no, in no certain terms do I believe that Carolina wins if the replays are called correctly. But the touchdown that Cal had at first, everybody is – said that was clearly not a touchdown. And then the Michael Carter fumble looked to me as if the, oh, his elbow hit. Greg, first tell us how that process works now because it was my understanding, and I'm obviously wrong, that the replays were handled in Greensboro now or this season. Tell us how that works. Well, what happened was this was actually last spring, so spring of 2016, when the NCAA uh, allowed – use of what they consider to be a, a collaborative replay model, kind of on an experimental basis. But what it allowed the ACC to do was essentially set up a command center in Greensboro. And I think what a lot of people thought, Tommy, and I think you may have been in that, that camp initially, is that the command center in Greensboro would handle all of the replays. And, and that's, that's not the case. There is still an on-site replay booth. And what this what this ruling by the NCAA allowed, number one, it allows the field officials to have more conversation with the on-site replay booth. So that's a good thing because there's more communication. But then what you also have with that command center in Greensboro is you have kind of an extra set of eyes. And it's not designed for the command center in Greensboro to say, hey, this is what happened. You guys need to run with this. They're basically just kind of watching things play out and they want the on-site officials, both in the booth and on the field, to decide on the call and to make the right call. Where the command center people come in is if they disagree with what the people on-site uh, determined, and they'll say, hey, we need to look at this further. Uh, and so it's really just kind of an extra layer. But Larry Fedora talked about it on his radio show on Tuesday night because somebody had asked about, you know, what's the process for you in determining to, to throw your challenge flag because you only get one a game. And what Fedora said is now that the, the NCAA allows teams to have a monitor upstairs, and he actually has a staff member that, that looks at every play. And because he, he said, yeah, when I'm on the field, I obviously have an initial opinion, but I don't have enough of a, a visual to be able to make that determination on my own. So he's waiting for the guy upstairs to talk to him and say, hey, this is something that we need to pursue. But he said a lot of times you don't have to do that because when you go over and you, you talk to the sideline judge, they're very good about being uh, 
open about the process and they'll say, hey, we've already got our guys looking at it. Uh, don't worry. Don't, don't, don't throw your flag now because they're already reviewing the play. And I, I think that's probably why that initial touchdown by Cal was not reviewed by – there wasn't a flag thrown by Fedora for that review because he must have thought it was being reviewed upstairs. Yeah, I, I think most people can agree that that probably should not have been called a touchdown. It didn't look at, that way to me. But then you mentioned the, the Michael Carter play, and they actually reviewed that one. And they came back and said, you know, upon review, the ruling is confirmed. So I don't know exactly the discrepancy there. Obviously, there were some. But that's kind of how the process works. Yeah, tough tough calls against Carolina both ways. And I mentioned the state game. Guys, I don't know if you saw it, but I was watching it. They State appeared to get the first down late, appeared to be on top of the South Carolina defender. They reviewed it for seemingly ever and came back and said the ruling on the field stands. State lost the ball on downs by about six inches. Of course, you know, tough. That, that happens. Let's move on to the offensive line. We've got Ingersoll and we've got Ross. And Ross, talk to us what Cap talked about today. Uh, North Carolina's offensive line has taken a beating figuratively and literally with some injuries. Give us the scoop on the OL heading to the Louisville game. Yeah, I mean, I kind of talked to Cap about what he thought about the performance against Cal. Um, kind of get his evaluation analysis after they obviously watched a bunch of tape. You know, his main takeaway was it was average. Um, he was impressed with some things that Cam Dillard did. He seemed pretty high on what Sweet did, and um, Sweet was the, the right tackle. And, um, you know, Fedora was pretty high on Sweet as well in his Monday press conference. He liked a little bit what Khalil Rogers did, but mentioned that Khalil got tired, you know, kind of in the first half. And he thought that Polino needed to be more physical. So, I mean, obviously it was kind of a tepid analysis. Obviously, there's a lot more things they could have done better, but I think he came away moderately pleased with how to perform. I mean, he said average, his own words. So I think he wants them to build on this and obviously, you know, take what they did, become more physical, and just those those new players, Polino, Rogers, Charlie Heck got some time, kind of they need to extend what they did, build on that, and go from there. So, I mean, I thought that they, you know, I didn't think there was too much push up front I thought the offensive game plan was to spread things wide anyway. I thought pass protection-wise was, you know, decent, maybe above average. I'm sure Ingersoll can speak on that. But, um, you know, I think I think average to, to slightly above average is probably the takeaway there. Mike, your take overall, you've watched it a couple times now. I, mean, I think they did all right. Carter had some running lanes to run through. There was a couple catastrophic busts that resulted in a big sack. I think that was maybe early in the game. But your take on what you saw overall? Yeah, so there was good and there was bad. Uh, there was a lot more good than I expected to see, honestly. I thought <clears throat> we're going to have a much steeper learning curve with some of those newer guys in there. Khalil Rogers, Polino, Charlie Heck, he was going to get some time. Even, you know, William Sweet had not played a ton last year. You know, he's, he's basically a brand-new guy as well uh, as a full-time starter. So uh, and, and Cam Dillard, but I, I, I had a lot of faith in Cam Dillard with the number of games he started that he could – he can pick up on things pretty quickly. So there was, there was some good and some bad. Uh, you guys are right. The pass protection was good. And I'll start with the good stuff. Uh, pass protection generally was pretty good for the first game of the season. I expected to see pass sets and hand placement and hip level uh, look a lot sloppier than it actually did. 
now we will we will find out as the season progresses how good of a defensive line Cal actually has. But they were able to stone those guys when, in four-man rushes. Uh, they were able to stone them up front and prevent, I mean, really any penetration at all. One time I saw late in the game uh, Charlie Heck being young, uh, having not played these kind of minutes before at the college level, uh, and it being the first game of the year. You know, he's just he's tired. You know, so, so the fans understand first game of the year, whether you're playing Alabama or you're playing McNeese State, it takes, you know, you got about two quarters worth of juice in you, and then by halftime, you're pretty gassed. And then the second game, you'll make it through about the third quarter, halfway through the fourth, and it isn't until about the third game you have your, your game legs underneath you. So what I saw late in the game was Charlie Heck was getting a little tired, and his pass, in his pass set, his preset, just up on the line of scrimmage, he was standing pretty tall. Now, what was impressive about that was how he was able to actually get back into his pass set and get his hands on guys and stop them. For a young guy, that's, that's promising because he was, he was tired and he should have been getting beat much more than he did late in the game, and he just wasn't. Uh, he's also a huge guy. I don't know if anybody's ever met Charlie in person. He's a massive human being, very Garrett Reynolds-esque. So, you know, that, that, that plays at his advantage. But pass protection looked pretty good. Our pullers... When we were running um, play action off of counters and, and power, power uh, gap teams, our pullers did a great job of getting around and getting on their assignment and selling the run very well. I thought that when we ran that with both Surratt and Brandon Harris, both quarterbacks had time uh, and they didn't have guys in their face. So the play action game looked really good. Some of, the, some of the bad that I saw, we tried to stretch the ball a lot. So we tried to run a lot of outside zone in the run game we got to get a lot better on the backside of getting guys cut down because usually when our stretch plays were getting blown up for, you know, small gain, no gain, or even a loss, it was because the guy on the backside was making the play. So the backside defense then or the will linebacker, and that should never be happening. Um, if those guys are making those kind of plays for Cal, go ahead and sign them up for Sundays right now because those are NFL caliber plays. That shouldn't be happening. You leave them unblocked for the most part. There's no way those guys should make that play. The Cal defense was. So we've got to do a better job getting, getting the backside guys down, specifically the three techniques. So the backside defensive tackles, we've got to cut them, get them on the ground better. And that's Bentley Spain. That's, uh, that's William Sweet. That is R.J. Prince. Those are, you know, and those are guys who have played before. So that's stuff that I don't expect to see from those guys. They were making some mistakes on that front. So they're going to need to clean that up. And then the other, the other big uh, issue I saw was just mental stuff. So we have some new offensive linemen and some of, those big, some of the big penetration we saw, the, the big sack Tommy was talking about earlier in the game, I think it was in the second quarter, that was due to a pure mental error. And I think one, one big takeaway I have is that we have some guys that look like they, they have been playing in the past. So I'm speaking about, Bentley Spain, I'm speaking about Cam Dillard, I'm speaking about R.J. Prince, right? I'm speaking about William Sweet. Uh, and I mentioned Cam Dillard in that because he's played so many football games at a high level. He understands pass protection. What I'm noticing from those guys as well as the young guys is a failure to understand the purpose of a pass protection scheme and what you're trying to accomplish with it. Uh, what I mean by that is if you, if you ever, if you understand pass protection schemes, if you understand fans who are listening, you understand what a six-man protection scheme is with a slide. You've got one running back in the, in the backfield. He's going to be the sixth man in the protection. 
and your five offensive linemen. The running back goes opposite of the slide. Now, it's not a full slide like you think about everybody's sliding one gap over. It's a slide as in everybody's eyes go a certain direction with the backside tackle locking onto the defensive end. You're usually going to have the backside guard in the center, vice on the low technique over the center. The right guard will take the three technique over him by himself, and the right tackle will look out. Everybody on the right side of the line, including the center, is looking out for a wide rusher. That, back, that running back is going to go ahead and take anybody off the back, back side or anyone that comes between the backside tackle and guard. So that's what your general six-man protection with a slide looks like. We didn't have our inside guys, guards specifically, didn't seem to have much of a grasp of that, and that's any guard we had in there the whole game. So when we had protection breakdowns, it was usually from a guard in a six-man protection scheme who didn't understand what we were trying to do, and they would turn their eyes the wrong way. They would turn their body the wrong way. I saw Khalil Rogers just kind of gangbusters, just wall off an entire side of the line, did a great job throwing a guy on the ground, but he completely left his guy, who had his hand on the ground over top of him, just left him to go do whatever he wanted. We had two guys. We had two guys rush up the middle, and uh, and I, I can't I can't remember what happened on that play. I think we either threw an incompletion or a uh, interception. It wasn't good, and it was on a it was third and sixteen, I believe it was. So there that that's that's the that's the good, the bad. The good is protection looked pretty good. Uh, play action game looked very good for the from the offensive line. Bad was we had uh, we had some major mental errors. Not really a grasp of what the pass protection scheme is really about, what we're trying to accomplish with it, and backside cutoff in the outside zone. We ran so much outside zone, it became glaringly obvious that we had a problem there. So those are the two big takeaways I had, along with some other small things that we'll get into here later on in this podcast. Greg, another bad is Bentley Spain's injury. Uh, he came out fairly early with an injured hand. Your take on that and what's to follow? Well, the, the bad news for, for Bentley is that he came into the game you know, with an injured left knee, which caused him to miss really the, the last two weeks of training camp before he started practicing again last week ahead of the California game. And then, as you mentioned, in that game, he injures his, his right hand. Uh, so he's he's hobbling on a, on a bum left knee, and he's got his right hand in a cast. So uh, he he's gutting it out. How much he's actually going to be able to play, I don't think that's known yet. I know that Heck and, and William Sweet taking a lot of reps in, in practice. We will have to see uh, exactly how soon he can play. You know, maybe Mike can provide some perspective on that, how a right-hand injury affects a lineman, because we've seen in the past you know, defensive linemen will just club up their hand if it's broken and be fine. And I know there's a lot more technique involved with the offensive lineman as opposed to a, a defensive lineman. But it just kind of goes to the fact that you, Tommy Hatton's still not around. So he's not an option to play this weekend. We know Cohen's off the team. McPlino uh, has a ways to go in terms of he's got to really be more physical. Rodgers has got to get in better shape. So there is a lot of question marks with this offensive line. It would be very beneficial to have Spain, who is your senior leader, to be healthy and, and be able to actually be on the, the field with his teammates to really help Cam Dillard kind of settle the offensive line down due to their experience. But clearly that's not the case right now. And you know, how quickly Bentley is going to be healthy, I, I don't think we know that right now, Tommy. 
Before Mike get, gets in there on the on the injury issue, um, Cap said that there's a competition at guard now. I mean, obviously, we came into the game thinking that Polina was going to get the majority of the stat, snaps. But Cleo Rogers comes in and, and plays a lot as well and obviously did some nice things, has a conditioning issues. But he told me on uh, Tuesday afternoon that R.J. Prince, Cleo Rogers, and Nick Polino are competing this week for the starting spot. I mean, that mean, I'm sure all three will play on Saturday, but obviously he's looking for who has the best week of practice and who can get things done at those two guard spots. So that's a little note I wanted to share with you all. Mike, a left tackle with a broken right hand. How does that work? Well, so for those of you that have taken the time to watch any of those film room to the field videos that, that I've done with myself and EJ Wilson, Brian Chakos has been out there. We've gotten some good stuff in, and one of the things that we talked about one week was punch mechanics on the offensive line and the significance of your inside hand or your trail hand. For those of you that have seen the videos, I refer to it as my trail hand. So for a left tackle, it's his right hand. That's your power hand. That's the, that's the hand that generates all the force in your punch. Your outside hand really is more of just a, it's, it's icing on the cake. It, it, helps, it helps guide you. It's a rhythm hand. It, it keeps, it keeps the, the rhythm of your punch kind of timed up, but really where all the power comes from, where all the force and control comes from is that inside hand. So as a left tackle, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take my right, I'm trying to take my right hand and I've got my elbow tight to my rib cage, right? And as soon as I see a little window, I've timed it up perfectly, right? And I know, I know that defensive end or outside rusher is right where I want him to be about, you know, about a foot and a half to two feet away from me. I'm going to fire that hand out and I'm going to lock onto his breastplate. At that point, you can block a guy one-handed if, if you've got the technique down. I was at, it's something Sam Pittman taught me. I was actually shocked. He made me go through an entire day of, of practice, and I wasn't allowed to use my outside hand on my punch. And I learned how to actually block dudes with one hand, and, and it, it works. And then you just use your outside hand to guide them or to, to, to do some hand combat or whatever you need. So for a left tackle, that right hand, uh, assuming that's the technique he's using, which I'm sure it is, it's universal technique a left tackle with a bum right hand is a problem now a right tackle with a bum right hand not so much a problem some of the injuries that Bentley has right now are really the two main ones obviously the broken right hand and the bum left knee you know I'm not coach Cap, and I'm sure he's considered this and I don't know if they've come they've gone to Bentley with this yet but it's it's an it's an option Bentley has played right tackle in the past when he was a freshman he played he took snaps at right tackle he is in as good a position as he can be in, at least from a pass protection standpoint, to play right tackle. He'll have his left knee bent as a right tackle. It'll be a load-bearing leg, but that outside leg, the knee is bent slightly in your kick. It's, it's kind of awkward, and if you have the knee, the knee injury that Bentley has right now, I imagine there's a ton of pain in that left leg when it's extended out. He's playing left tackle, but on the right side, that's just a load-bearing leg. And with it bent the whole time, he's not using near the, near the flexibility he needs to, to, to get moving. It's just his post leg. So there might be a, you know, and then that's something Bentley's got to figure out. I mean, I'm obviously not him. I don't know what his pain tolerance is in that leg. But I would think, just from an anatomical standpoint, from a physiological standpoint, he'd be fine on the left leg if he were playing right tackle. Same goes with his busted right hand, because his left hand is fine, which would be his trail hand on the right side. And that's where all his power would come from. And then he could club up that right hand and just and, and use it as a guiding hand and use it as a control hand and use it as, you know, combat, whatever he needed to use it for, just kind of extra icing on the cake. 
The run game, it becomes an issue on both sides. Um, but again, on the right side, you can use your inside hand, your left hand. Your inside hand is your power hand on, in the run game on the right side too, assuming you're running the ball to the right most of the time. So interesting possibilities. And I know Cap has probably considered all this. The coaching staff has considered this. I don't know if Bentley has. Um, it wouldn't at all surprise me to see him end up on the right side, though, this week. Ross, depth. Cap had a lot of it. Now he doesn't. Did he say anything about that? What What have you um, learned today or this week in practice about the depth issues if Spain cannot go? Yeah, I mean, I, you run with Charlie Heck and William Sweet. I don't think Mason Veal has proved he can he can be a player at right tackle or at least one of the tackle spots. I think Cap feels really good where Sweet is. He can play both. Uh, he, you know, Cap has cross-trained all of his tackles to play both spots. She put Sweet at um, left, put uh, Heck at right, who's got a, a full game experience underneath his belt now, which is a positive, and you run with those two. And, I mean, those guys are good-looking tackles. I mean, I, from the technique standpoint, that's more Mike's area. But, I mean, those guys are big, athletic, long tackles, and I like that for the future of UNC. But death-wise, you know, you would like to have four tackles. I think UNC has three. You take Bentley out, you have two. But your backup there is um, – is veal i think once spain is out and, and obviously you can prince has some experience to tackle as well that's an option as well but it's pretty slim inside now that jerry jerry cohen's gone and um you know still trying to develop some of the younger players and then obviously at center it's 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 cam dillard and then rj prince who hasn't taken a single snap or a single play as a as a tar heel so that's what you got there it's slim pickings and and one injury affects a lot of things indeed it does greg quarterback briefly because we could talk about it forever. I, I think they still both play Saturday. Do you agree there? And if not, why not? Yeah, definitely so. And because I mean, after practice on Tuesday, Brandon Harris was up front saying that Fedora has not talked to him or Sherrod about the starting job. Uh, and that, to me, kind of gives the indication that this is going to continue. Uh, the fact that Harris is still working with the one-sum seems to suggest that as well. And... One thing I've talked to, to Larry about, and I talked with uh, Coach Eckendorf about as well, is I know fans don't like to hear this, but the decision on the quarterback situation cannot be made on one game. Brandon Harris, because he did not graduate from LSU until July, was not able to really go through OTAs with the team. I mean, he couldn't do a lot of work during the summer months, even though he was here. And so he's just had a crash course during training camp. Yes, he did not pick up things as quickly as they would have liked. As Coach Cap said, I guess it was two weeks ago, right before the, the first game, said his head was still swimming. And so in an ideal world, he would have picked it up sooner. But you can't bring a guy in, only have him practice for a month, and then say, ah, okay, well, you're, you're not going to cut it. Now, did Chaz play better Saturday? Of course, I don't think anybody has doubted that. And you know, if you look at Larry Fedora's comments on Monday, he was very complimentary of, of Chaz Stratt. And he didn't say a whole lot about Brandon Harris other than that he had those two interceptions and that's, you can't have that. So I understand why Fedora is keeping this competition the way it is. He wants to give Harris enough time to, to show what he can do. It was a competition and training camp for a reason. And I, I think fans need to understand that one game 
um, does not solidify this thing. Now, if we get to Saturday and Surratt again is the the dominant quarterback, maybe then you know Fedora will be willing to to take a step in in that direction. But who knows? Maybe Harris is the guy because look, North Carolina, Fedora said they had five explosive plays. I've counted six, but you know, however however he wants to count them is fine. Regardless, that's one of the fewest amounts of explosive plays that Larry Fedora has ever had in this offense, whether it be as a head coach or as an offensive coordinator. So we're talking going back about 18 or 19 years. That is not going to get it done against Louisville because if you look at what Louisville has, they have a very solid front four, very effective. And while a lot of people made a big deal about the fact that they really stumbled at the end of last year, which they did, but three of their four losses last year is because teams had a ton of success through the air, passing the ball down the field for explosive plays. North Carolina's offense that we saw on Saturday really doesn't have that ability. So something has to give. You know, these quarterbacks have to play better. It was you know, Cap confirmed that it was a conservative game plan. I think everybody knew that. But it's good to hear the coaches kind of confirm that. Uh, that kind of speaks to what they were trying to do. So you know, maybe they need Harris's arm to, to make some of those deep throws. We'll have to see exactly how that plays out. Uh, but but that's that's there's a lot that goes into that decision beyond just how the two guys played in one game. I think what we saw Saturday kind of confirmed what we talked about for three or four weeks before camp. During camp, you know, Brand Harris has the arm strength, but missed on some throws. You know, Chad Stratt, maybe not as talented as a thrower, but can move the ball is definitely more athletic and a, a more elusive, effective runner. So those two things kind of proved true. I mean, Harris did make some throws, but he also missed on a bunch of throws. And it's clear that the Surratt moves the ball better. And it just felt, it looked and felt more comfortable with him running the offense and kind of do, using some of those speed option plays and working with his running backs back there. I'm just kind of interested in the, in the team dynamic. I don't know if Mike can speak on this, if he's been around some quarterback competitions. I mean, how do you how do you go about you know benching one for the other? How do you get the pulse of the team and the temperature of the room to kind of see what goes in in on into that decision? Because obviously it's a one that affects the whole offense, affects the team, and affects the future of this program. I just think it's a super interesting topic. My take is I think they maybe let this competition rage until after ODU. You know, maybe open up the playbook for both quarterbacks against ODU. They have a lead and see what happens there and make a decision going into. Uh, into Duke week. So I don't know how, how Mike can maybe speak on that competition and we can go from there. Well, I mean, here's, here's one thing that they don't have to worry about. This isn't a Marquise and Mitch situation. They don't have to worry about Surratt transferring at the end of the year because Brandon Harris is only here for a year, right? So they can let that competition go as far as they want it to go. And I think Greg made a good point. Coach Fedora alluded to this, is that you can't base this off of one game with a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of experience in the offense because he just wasn't able to get it. You know, this wasn't a Malik Zaire situation down at Florida. Malik Zaire sucked at Florida. Florida man's got a real, a real reason to gripe about him being in the game because he just chose to go to Arizona and train. He didn't have to. He chose to go do that all summer and not be around the team and not enroll at a school, which is why we ended up closing the door on him back when we were, we were – we were uh, entertaining this graduate transfer idea and why we ended up going with Brandon Harris because he wanted to be here. That being said, Brandon just didn't have the experience. Um, he wasn't able to get in because he wasn't able to graduate 
uh, early enough to get in here and get in with the team during OTA. So it's not his fault. Um, and he did some good things. You know, fans need to understand, too, that Brandon wasn't helped a whole lot by some of the, you know, we've already talked on it, some of the busts on the offensive line. Because though there weren't as many in pass protection as I thought there would be, when we did bust, it had major consequences. And for a guy who's already swimming mentally with the offense, right, trying to make something go and trying to be the guy, he's got that pressure on him too because he knows he's got a kid right behind him, right, who's going to come in if he, if he blows it. Uh, on top of all that, you've got guys in your face. It, it, makes, it makes life pretty difficult. And that's not making excuses for him. I mean, the kid, he made some mistakes. So did Chad. So I think you're right. I think – I think that that might be something to pay attention to, the quarterback competition extending through the season many more weeks than everybody wants to admit that it might because what's the worst that's going to happen, right? Brandon Harris turns out to not be the guy four, five, six weeks into the season. Chaz Surratt does. Well, guess what? Chaz already got those game reps, and guess who our starting quarterback is next year and for the next few years? It's Chaz. We don't have to worry about him going anywhere because he knows that job is his next year already as long as somebody doesn't come in and beat him out. Now, as for the team dynamic, how a, how the quarterback competition would affect a college team, you know, I, again, I've talked about this before in the past on these podcasts, and, you know, I was here in 06 when we had the Cam Sexton, Joe Daly, you know, quarterback, we'll call it, we'll call it a competition, but it was really just a structured rotation, and it, it didn't do anything for the team, and it, it hurt the team more than anything. Nobody was able to get into a rhythm. Nobody felt comfortable. Everyone was worried. Everyone, as in Joe and Cam, were obviously worried no matter what they did, if they messed up, the next guy was going to come in. And it's hard to play scared like that. It's impossible to play scared like that, especially at the quarterback position. How it affects the locker room, you know, there's, there's two things to consider. It's, one, the team's, the team's bond with the guy that's playing. And I'll use TJ as an example in a minute. And then, two, it's, it's, it's the difference between – college and pros and how that's run, right? So number one is junior, senior year, their fans wanted, this is 09 and 2010 I'm talking about now, fans wanted Bryn Renner in the game. Every time TJ messed something up, they wanted Bryn Renner in the game. And like I told Tommy before on this podcast, the backup quarterback is always the most popular guy in town. Everybody thinks he can do it better than a starter. fact of the matter is, if he could do it better than a starter, he wouldn't be a backup. The exception of the rule is Mitch Trubisky, but again, we know why Marquise was in there because Marquise was producing and we were winning with Marquise. That's, but but that, that relationship is the exception of the rule, right? In 09, Bryn was a freshman. He was not ready to come in the game. But in 2010, there was a tension in the football center that maybe at some point there might be a transition away from TJ into Bryn, which if that had happened, and the reason why that tension existed was because Fan pressure, donor pressure, the offense wasn't producing or at least didn't have the reputation of producing uh, like the defense had. So there was, that, there was that tension, there was that anxiety that maybe that transition would happen. From our standpoint as players, the guys who had been starting at that point for a couple of years on offense, we were committed to TJ. TJ was our guy. And if there had been a transition, it would have been very difficult for us multi-year starters who had, who had you know, developed a bond with him as our quarterback that would have been a problem. Would the coaches have asked us? Hell no. They don't care. Not at the college level. At the college level, you know, we're still, to them, we're kids, right? And our input on those sorts of things doesn't generally matter. Now, it's, now on the pro level, 
sometimes maybe a star player will have some input. Football is much different than basketball in that respect, in that football players, the NFL players, have much less input in personnel changes, especially at that magnitude, unless you are the quarterback and it's one of your skill players and you're a Peyton Manning or a Tom Brady, right? But for the most part, unless you're just Saturday from a lineman standpoint, you're not really going to have any input on who, the, who, who, who anybody on the field is going to be, much less the quarterback. You know, and the pros, they don't really care either. That college is all about, you know, brotherhood and unity and all that. And, you know, college, college kids buy into that. You know, we're, we're young, we're impressionable, and that sort of stuff matters because there's a bond with our school and there's a bond with our teammates that you just don't have in the league. It's not that way in the league. Everybody in the NFL is an independent contractor, and they kind of just go on their own way. So personnel changes don't really affect pros, right, at that level, the way that they would affect a college locker room. And that sort of thing does run the risk of affecting the locker room unless you're like Fedora and the staff and you have set it up so that everybody understands that there is an open competition at quarterback and you don't have the luxury as fellow players and teammates, you don't have the luxury right now of really imprinting and bonding with one quarterback because you know they're both going to be the guy, at least for the foreseeable future, until one of those guys is chosen. Right. So for right now, to answer your question, Ross, not really going to affect the locker room much as it is. I'm sure both of those guys get along just fine with everybody. I'm sure at this point there isn't anyone playing favorites with one of those quarterbacks. Right. The gossip and the clickiness in the locker room, I, I, I doubt very strongly that that has set in at this point. Ask me again week eight and week nine, and that might be a completely different answer. But for right now, let that competition roll on. It's not affecting the locker room dynamic, at least I wouldn't think so, having, having been a part of that and from the outside looking in. And I don't think it hurts anybody letting it roll on because you don't have to worry about upsetting Chaz, who looks like the future of that position for this team in future years. You don't have to worry about Chaz getting mad and leaving town. He's just not, he's not going to because he's the guy next year. I think that much is at least obvious. Let's see if Brandon Harris can actually turn this into something this year because the kid's crazy athletic, and he might, he might actually bring something to the table we're just not seeing right now. So I'm with Fedora, and I'm with you, that I think this might actually continue a little longer than, than we previously expected. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Ross and said on Twitter, and I've said, I said Saturday that I thought it would go on to at least ODU because I do not think we'll know how good the team is and therefore the players until that Duke game. I, I just don't think – you can make that decision. I know there will be plenty of people that listen to this podcast and disregard, uh, disagree with all of us, but they all love Greg Barnes. So <laughs> you got that going, Greg. Guys, it's been fun. It's been, a, it's been an interesting podcast. We'll get back together later in the week to talk more Louisville, but I'm going to wrap it up for this show. Guys, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.